Good afternoon. Before we get to the text today, give me a minute or two just to kind of give you a brief update uh, from the Morawski family and for the next couple weeks of preaching as well. Uh, by God's grace, our house went under contract this past week, so we're very grateful for that. Uh, we closed in Pennsylvania on June 14th. We close here in Michigan on June 30th. So we've got lots of packing in between those two dates, lots of boxes, and lots of fun for our family. But that does mean that our timeline here is just a little bit shifted from what it was previously. Uh, next week, I'm going to be away with the family in New Jersey. I have a wedding I'm officiating for one of my former youth group students. Really exciting stuff there. Uh, Pastor Aaron is going to fill the pulpit next week. So you can look forward to that. Very exciting. By the way, I love that this is a clapping church. This is just, it's, you don't have to ask for it. You just come. That's right. So after next week, well, there's two more weeks of Sundays after that. Uh, I have those two Sundays to finish up my last two sermons with you. And then the first Sunday of July, Pastor Garrett will be in the pulpit and will preach that Sunday. And then... I can't even finish a sentence anymore. It's great. It's great. If you're out late today, it's your fault, not mine. Just saying, okay? Um, after that, there, there are some exciting developments going on behind the scenes. I can't quite tell you what yet, but we're going to keep you posted in the weeks to come with who's going to uh, possibly, potentially, probably come and fill the pulpit for some time uh, between now and the time that you have a permanent pastor. So we'll, uh, we'll keep you posted on all of that, but some good stuff. I, I just encourage you to listen to what Hal said before and be praying. Okay, be praying, because that's the way that God is going to work us through your prayers. There are a lot of exciting things to come in the next few weeks. Today, I'm going to continue my short series on the healthy foundations of a local church. Two weeks ago, I started the series by preaching on the need to exalt, to exalt, to glorify God. God, healthy churches exist for the glory of God. They exalt Jesus Christ. That's their primary purpose. We saw that our redemption, our salvation brings glory to God. We saw that our trials and our blessings, both alike, bring glory to God, individually and corporately as a church. And although I started the sermon two weeks ago in Isaiah, I ended up in the New Testament with three main takeaway applications, three specific applications and ways that a local church can bring glory to God. First, I said, a local church glorifies God by preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. That has to be primary. Second, a local church glorifies God by teaching sound biblical theology. And third, a local church glorifies God by giving proper place to edification and evangelism. And that's where I want to zero in today. The next two sermons that I preach are going to focus on edification today and next time on evangelism. Local church glorifies God by edifying each other and evangelizing the world. This sermon will focus on edification. So what I'm going to do this week, I'm going to give away my big idea, my main point right up front. And then we're going to explore a few passages so you can see how I got there. And what I hope to show you from Scripture today is that the local church glorifies God when it practices edification through discipleship. The local church glorifies God when it practices edification through discipleship. Let me define a few of those terms for you so we're all on the same page. To glorify means to exalt, to worship God, to give God the proper weight that he deserves, to magnify, as we just sung, 
his name, to worship, give God the praise that he has earned. And we saw last time that God earned that praise through both his work in creation and his work in redemption. So we glorify God. We also edify one another. To edify means to build up. That's literally what that word means, to build one another up, to encourage each other, to grow one another in the faith. When we build each other up spiritually, we are edifying one another. And finally, discipleship. Discipleship is all about growth, intentional growth. Pastor Aaron is our local discipleship guru. His definition of discipleship is laboring in the lives of a few to build mature and equipped followers of Christ who will in turn invest in others. That's so good, I'm going to say it again. Discipleship is laboring in the lives of a few to build mature and equipped followers of Christ who will in turn invest in others. Disciples make disciples. Disciples make disciples. The church glorifies God when it practices edification, building each other up, through discipleship. We exalt God when we build one another up by means of intentionally helping one another to grow spiritually. That's the big idea. Now, where did all that come from? Here's what I didn't do. I didn't sit down, write that sentence out, and say, which scripture can I use to support that point? Right? That's the wrong way to go about Bible study. What I did was a couple weeks ago, I searched the New Testament for the phrase, glory of God. What does the New Testament say about the glory of God and what kinds of behaviors of believers bring glory to God? What do we do as believers that would exalt the name of God in the local church? And what I did was I took that together and that's where that main idea came from and the two points of this sermon. It would be a two-point sermon. It's almost as simple as it gets. A one-point sermon would be even simpler. This is a two-point sermon. First point, spiritual growth and discipleship bring glory to God. Spiritual growth and discipleship brings glory to God. Our first stop today, we're going to look at two main passages. Our first stop is John 15. So open your Bibles to John chapter 15. And John 15, as you're turning there, I'll tell you a little bit about where we're landing this is part of a five-chapter sequence in John's Gospel. It all takes place at the Last Supper. John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 is all one extended conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And in the middle of that conversation, Jesus has some very familiar words in John 15. We're going to start reading in verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Just pause there for a minute. We're not going to get into all of this today. I, uh, this is not a sermon just on John 15. I preached on John about four years ago. I'm not going to get into detail now as I did back then. Uh, by the way, I'll just mention that Rebecca Van Houten is uh, putting my sermons on a YouTube page just in case they magically get erased uh, from another web page out there. So you can find my sermon soon, I think, uh, on John on YouTube. So a couple weeks from now, you can dig into this a little bit more. But I just want to make a, an interesting connection here with John 15:1 and the book of Isaiah. Because we've been thinking a lot about Isaiah lately. When Jesus says, I am the true vine, that implies that there is another vine that he's comparing himself to. Remember Isaiah chapter 5? You don't have to turn there, I'll just remind you, God had a vine, and that vine was who? Is Israel, and he's given her the perfect conditions to, to grow. He's 
put the perfect seed in the ground, you give it the perfect soil, the perfect water, and instead of bearing choice great grapes, that vine bears stink fruit. Remember that? Isaiah chapter 5. Now, all over the New Testament, or the Old Testament, that analogy of Israel as the vine is used all over the Old Testament. Psalm chapter 80, Hosea chapter 10, Jeremiah chapter 2, Ezekiel 15, 17, 19, and so on. Israel is God's vine. And Israel had her chance. She had a chance. Israel was God's vine in the Old Testament, and she failed to produce good fruit. So she was torn up, she was thrown out, and she was burned. And now Jesus comes in, and he shows the Jewish people, he says, where you failed, I have succeeded. I am the true vine. You get judgment, but life is going to come through me. It's a statement that's infused with the theology of the gospel right there in the Gospel of John. Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's the gospel, right? I am the true vine, Jesus says. Now, what Jesus does next is he develops that vine metaphor for his disciples. And I want you to keep his audience in mind. He's in the upper room. His disciples are there with him. Peter, James, John, except for one. Who's not there? Judas, right? Judas has already left to betray Jesus. But the other 11, they're all there. Now listen to this, verses 2 to 6. Jesus says, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, God, takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. A couple things I'll point out here. Again, I'm not going to spend a ton of time here, but there are a lot of different views on who exactly these branches are that don't bear fruit. He says some branches are here that bear fruit, they are pruned, and then they bear more fruit. But there are other branches that fail to bear fruit, they're taken away, and they're burned. Now, without getting into it, I understand the branches that are burned to be unbelievers. People who appear to be part of the church, they seem to be in Christ. They might even be on church leadership teams, on ministry teams. They, they've been here their whole lives, some of them. Everyone thinks they're believers, and yet they're not. And the reason I take that view is because back in John 13, Jesus alludes to Judas using this same language. In John 13, starting verse 10, Jesus says to him, to Judas, or to all the disciples, he says, you are clean but not every one of you. For he knew who it was that would betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. And fast forward two chapters here, chapter 15, verse 3, Jesus again says, you are clean. When Jesus says this, we cannot help but think, in the context of John's gospel, of where this conversation started. That sentence, you are clean, brings our minds back to John 13 and reminds us of Judas, who was not clean. If the disciples are those branches that do bear fruit, that means that Judas would be a good representation of the branches that do not bear fruit. And if there was ever a person who was seemingly in Christ without really being in Christ, 
Judas would be that prime candidate, wouldn't he? He spent three and a half years ministering with Jesus and with the other disciples. He had a leadership position among them. He spent time caring for the sick. He spent time caring for the poor, spreading the good news about the Messiah. And yet we know for sure that Judas was not a genuine believer. The fruit that he bore was like those wild grapes in Isaiah. Inedible, stink fruit, good for nothing. We know that Judas is going to spend eternity separated from God in the fires of hell. Or as Jesus puts it in John 15, 6, thrown into the fire and burned. Now our focus though today is not so much on the unbelievers who appear to be believers, but our focus is going to be on the believers that bear fruit, those who are in Christ, those in whom Jesus' words abide. It says they bear fruit, they are pruned, and then they bear more fruit. Let's think about this this week. If ever I am speaking to a group of people who have been pruned, this is it. I expect, based on the words of John 15, that greater fruit will come from you because of the trials that you have been through. I, I expect it based on the words of Christ because you have been pruned. Pruning is not a fun process, I would imagine. But it is a necessary process for believers to grow. And look at what happens when we abide in Christ. Look at verse 7. Jesus goes on and he says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Abiding in the word of God develops a more fruitful prayer life. Isn't that cool? You want to pray more effectively? Study this. Memorize it. Make it a part of your life. Live by it. And that will increase your prayer life, according to Jesus in John 15, 7. But more to the point of our study today, we're going to land on verse 8. Jesus says, By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. The closer you abide with Christ, the more fruitful your prayer life will be. And the more fruitful your prayer life will be, the more you abide with Christ, the more God is glorified. Jesus is saying here that by bearing much fruit, you prove to be my disciples. And this is significant. We can't misunderstand this. This is not Jesus saying, if you bear fruit, then you'll be a Christian. That's a works-based salvation. That's not what he's saying here. Jesus is saying what he's been saying all along in this gospel, if you read it through from the beginning, the mark of a true disciple is spiritual fruit. The mark of a true disciple is spiritual fruit. To put it another way, to put it a negative way, a spiritually fruitless life is a sign of an unbeliever. And that should be a wake-up call for some of us. This passage should make us examine our lives and consider what fruit have we been producing for the greater kingdom of God and for his church. Have we shared our faith recently? We should ask that question. Who have we been discipling? Or who has been discipling us? Are we seeing evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Do we see those things in us? Have we seen answered prayer lately? Have you noticed that God is answering the prayer that you are offering up to him? Remember, Jesus is comparing two kinds of people in this passage. Those who are producing fruit and those who are not. Believers and unbelievers. 
There is no third category in the Gospel of John. There is no category of those who are on the vine but are not producing fruit, but are really still a Christian. They just haven't lived their lives for Christ in the past decade or so. No such thing, according to John's Gospel. I know that there are times when we struggle in our sin, and we are wayward sheep, and, and we wrestle with life. But the normal characteristic of a true believer is one who abides in Christ and has fruit in their lives. And a fruitful ministry brings glory to God. Spiritual growth brings glory to God. A Christian who does not grow spiritually, who does not produce spiritual fruit, who's doing nothing for the church or for God's kingdom, does not bring proper glory to God. You see how that works? This is found not just here, but all over the New Testament. I told you I did a little search. What does the Bible say about the glory of God in the New Testament? Here's another passage, Philippians 1, 9-11. Listen to this. Paul says, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with all knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The glory and praise of God. What Paul's saying is that when your love abounds more and more, God gets more glory. When, when your love grows along with the greater knowledge of God and the greater discernment, that brings greater glory to God. When you become more pure and more blameless and, and when you are filled with the fruit of righteousness, God gets the glory. Spiritual growth brings great glory to God. That means that when we disciple people to have a deeper understanding of our Savior and of the gospel and of his word, the end product isn't just more mature, more knowledgeable Christians, although that's part of it, but the ultimate end product is the glory of God. And in that sense, Bible study is never fruitless. When you grow in your knowledge of the Bible, when you grow in your knowledge of God, when you grow in your appreciation of the gospel, your life magnifies your Savior every time you open this word. Isn't that amazing? There was a time a while back, I was uh, in my first year of my PhD studies at Westminster Theological Seminary, first year student, and things were going downhill. And by that I mean I was driving like crazy hours back and forth trying to do full-time seminary, full-time uh, church work, you know, full-time pastoring. And, and at one time, the seminary there at Westminster basically let go of their entire Old Testament uh, board of people, you know, their whole Old Testament guy, all of them, they were gone for one reason or the other. And they had no one there. I'm, I'm an Old Testament guy in a program with no Old Testament professors. I'm looking around going, what am I doing here, right? So I started looking around. I, I aimed my sights on a, a guy named Dan Block. He was at Wheaton College at that time. And he was a PhD scholar who, who was helping PhD students at that time and had a great program going. But he's right at the end of his retirement. I wasn't sure if I'd be able to make it there and get in, slip in quick enough. And I also wasn't sure whether they take my credits. I've already done a year of work. I said, are you going to take that year and kind of count it for your program? And we had a nice email exchange back and forth. And ultimately, the answer was, no, we're not going to count any of your credits. You can come here and start from ground zero if you want, though. But one of the things he said in that email, never forget it. He said that growth in the Word of God 
Knowledge of the Word of God is never for nothing. Never for nothing. Biblical learning is never wasted. Even if you start at ground zero, biblical learning is never wasted. God doesn't waste anything in your life. Your trials, your experiences, your knowledge of his word, your time, nothing. You can look back on your time at past churches and you, you might think, man, I really wasted a lot of time here. None of it was wasted. Doesn't matter how it ended. None of it was wasted because you grew in your knowledge of God. You grew spiritually. And all of that brings glory to God. That's why it's so essential for this church to pick a pastor who is knowledgeable in the Word of God. Find someone who knows the Word, who loves the Lord, who's a student of the Bible. Because that kind of person brings glory to God, and he will lead you to glorify God more. Because that kind of knowledge and that kind of love of the Word can only spill out from him and overflow to you. That brings glory to God. It's like what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, for, for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it might increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The more people know about the gospel of grace, the more it increases thanksgiving for the God of the gospel, and the more that God is glorified. Discipleship brings God glory. All that I haven't even talked about, the greatest discipleship pass, passage that there is, the Great Commission. Matthew 28, go therefore and what? Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. The controlling verb in that statement is make disciples. That's the great commission. Make disciples. That's the main verb in the Greek. How do we do that? How do we make disciples? What does it look like? First of all, we go, it says, to make disciples. Two weeks from now, we'll talk more about that. But second of all, we baptize. I pray that very, very soon, you will be a baptizing church again. We are in a stage of ministry right now where, you know, you're putting down roots and you're forming an identity, you're establishing your core values and who you are, but don't stop evangelizing in the meantime. You might not have a, a place to dump people up here. There's a whole lake right out there. Go use it. Baptize the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How do we make disciples? We teach them to observe all that God has commanded us. As we saw, when we teach them, they increase in knowledge of God, they increase in knowledge of the gospel, they increase in holiness, and that brings glory to God. It's very easy for churches to slip into a program-heavy mentality rather than a discipleship mentality. It's easy, I think, because we can measure success by those outward appearances. You know, how many came to our programs? How many came to our church services? That's an easy number to count. Rather, though, we ought to be asking the question, who is being discipled? How much spiritual fruit are we bearing? Do we see evidences of God at work among us in that way? We've got to be careful of these things. Guard against it. If success is measured only by how many come to our programs, then Taylor Swift concerts are far more spiritually successful than this church. A church's success is measured based on discipleship and spiritual fruit, not just numbers. So spiritual growth, discipleship, they bring glory to God. That's the first point. Second point, mutual edification and church participation brings glory to God. Mutual edification and church participation brings glory to God. 
Turn over a couple books to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15. We're going to briefly study a short little passage there. This comes near the end of the book of Romans. The Apostle Paul, by this point, has already walked through 11 chapters of the most detailed theological study of the gospel known to mankind. He explores the depths of our sin. He explores our salvation. He explores our future hope. And then, based on that gospel, starting in Romans 12, Paul examines the effect of that gospel in our lives. What should a gospel-changed person look like? Romans 12, 13, 14, 15, 16 tells us. And it tells us with a focus on community. What does the gospel look like lived out in the context of a community of believers in the church? That's the context of Romans 15. Look at Romans 15, starting verse 5. Paul says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's just dwell on this for a few minutes. What does the gospel look like to live out in the church? First, notice how Paul describes God. The God of endurance and encouragement. Endurance and encouragement. Two things that we desperately need as believers, right? Endurance implies that there will be obstacles in your life. That there will be obstacles and difficulties in the church. We will need to endure something difficult. You don't endure pleasant things, do you? You don't endure a bowl of ice cream. You don't endure a slice of pizza. You endure suffering. You endure sickness. You endure persecution. You endure Downton Abbey. Those are things that you endure, right? But God is a God of endurance. He is a God who will get you through that difficult time in your life. He is a God who will give you the strength to get through it. And he's also a God of encouragement. He lifts us up when we're down. And he enables us to be encouraging to other believers who are also down. Pastor Aaron mentioned this last week in his statement. I'm going to say it from my perspective now, too. Echoing the same thing, though. You have all been so encouraging to us as pastors and our families during this difficult time. You have been so overwhelmingly encouraging. The amount of you who have sent cards, who have sent emails, texts, invited us out to a meal, prayed with us, even offered financial help. The love of this church was overwhelming. This could have been one of the darkest moments of our lives. But I'm going to look back on this and remember the love of this church. And I praise God for that, because God is a God of encouragement, and he has enabled you to be a people of encouragement. That is what a Christian community should look like. It should be an atmosphere of uplifting encouragement. Why? Because God is a God of encouragement. So his people are a people of encouragement too. And Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Now the Greek there literally reads, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to think the same thing among one another. God wants us to be in harmony of mind, of purpose, of vision, that's not to say that we're all going to think alike all the time. It's okay to have differences of opinion on secondary or tertiary theological issues, on how to do church even, on the styles of music, on the color of the carpet, on all sorts of things. 
We don't want to hijack a phrase like this and pretend it's some kind of requirement to have a, a forced unity that will hold us hostage until all unanimously agree. That's not what the Bible's saying. Notice how that statement is controlled. May the God of encouragement and, you, and endurance grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That's the control there. In accord with Christ Jesus, the unity of mind, the, the harmony of spirit should all be related to our devotion to and following after Jesus Christ. We don't all have to agree on style of music. We don't all have to agree on color of the carpet. But we have to agree that Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd of this church and all of his teaching and all of his example and his gospel is our primary focus. That's what we have to agree on. Jesus is the focus and the vision of the church. And when we have that unity of vision and that unity of encouragement and unity of endurance, the text says in verse 6 that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See that theme of glorifying God here again? This is a beautiful thing. God gets the glory when this happens. When people from all different backgrounds, all different walks of life, all different opinions, all different sensibilities are able to unite for the common purpose of worshiping and building up this church, that brings God glory, not us. And Paul ends all this paragraph by saying, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you, for the glory of God. It says it again there. It's all for the glory of God. What does it mean to welcome one another? One of the coolest things for me was when I first came to this church plant. We uh, were meeting over the French church at that time still. It had been a few weeks since my family and I had been here. We kind of hung low for a little while, let the dust settle a bit. Well, a couple weeks in, we pulled up, and as we approached that entrance, we were greeted by two rows of teenagers standing and clapping and cheering as we came in. What a welcome. And at first I thought it was just for me. <laughs> but then I stood in that little foyer area and I saw that every single person coming in got that same cheer and that same clapping, that same applause. It was the coolest way I've ever entered church in my life. Now, now don't get me wrong, there's something special about the old handshake and hug from General Garland, right? I mean, we love that. That is an essential welcome to life as well. We don't want to miss any of those things, though. The idea of welcoming one another means to receive one another, to welcome one another into your fold, into your family, accepting each other with all of your, your flaws and your faults and your little idiosyncrasies and your weirdnesses. Because let's be honest, you're all weird. <laughs> Every one of us, right? Everyone, myself included, obviously. But when we welcome each other with the quirks and the oddities of our lives, when we accept each other even with those flaws and imperfections, it is for the glory of God. That's what it looks like. One of the church's core values ought to be about encouraging significant, meaningful participation and use of spiritual gifts for all the members, no matter what age, no matter what gender, no matter how advanced they are in their spiritual walk. That's the kind of church that the Apostle Paul pictured. In fact, take one more brief walk. I, mean, I said two passages, but let's, let's jump over to 1 Corinthians 12 just for a minute. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14. While you're going there, this is a, a church that was in dire need of good biblical education and morality. 
First Corinthians, the Corinthian church was just desperately in need of help. They were a broken church, a divided church, and all sorts of issues. But in the midst of all that, here's what Paul says. He gives them a vision of what the church should look like in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Jump into verse 4 of chapter 12. Paul says, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. There are varieties of service, but the same Lord. There are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the spirit for the common good. You know what that means? Every one of you who are believers has a spiritual gift to use in the church for the common good. Every one of you. If you're a believer, God doesn't wait until you turn 18 to start giving you those spiritual gifts. God, God doesn't wait until you're graduated college with a degree to start giving you those spiritual gifts, or you've landed a full-time job to start giving you those spiritual gifts. God, God doesn't wait until you're a certain length in your Christian maturity to start giving you those spiritual gifts. The moment you become a believer, the Holy Spirit enters you and gives you at least one spiritual gift to use for the building up of the body of Christ. Isn't that cool? This is a room filled with gifted people. Now look down at verse 20. I'm just going to read a chunk of the passage here. A lot of it's self-explanatory, but it's, it's a beautiful analogy that I think perfectly applies to what we're looking at. Verse 20, Paul says, As it is, there are many parts of one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts... Of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. That's awesome. This means that we don't just display the more presentable parts of the body on the Sunday morning. Every member of the body of Christ should actively participate in the church in some way for the mutual edification of the church to the glory of God. That's another thing, by the way, that I've noticed being here. Many of you have commented on it too. Now, I don't mean to be offensive here, but it might be a little bit offensive. I don't really care much. I'm offensive sometimes. It's not as offensive, but... There is a certain charm to the imperfections on display among us here. A certain charm to the imperfections. And by that I mean you're not as concerned about a perfect performance or a perfect show up on stage. Sometimes songs end up starting and stopping and then restarting. Whoops. It's okay. You just kind of laugh and you keep on going. You accept one another, even the imperfect faults, because it's more important that people are joining together in worship and using their gifts for the glory of God than it is that we do so perfectly. Because when we... When we emphasize the inclusive nature of everyone using their gifts, we're going to have some who are really skilled and really polished ministry before us, and then we're going to have some who are just starting out. And that's the beauty of it. Because that's how we disciple people. That's how people grow in their spiritual gifts. We train them, and when they mess up, not if, but when, we help them learn from it, and we help them grow in it. 
But that kind of mentality means that you're not going to have a perfectly polished product every Sunday service. And that is okay. I have seen people on this stage and these halls participating in ministry that I've never seen before. Praise God, that's so important. Who knew that Tom Wozniak could sing? <laughs> who, who knew Sarah Wayne plays the flute? Some of you are like, I don't even know these people at all. Praise God, they're here, they're among us, they're using their gifts. Who knew Ethan Lepofsky could smile just as much when he plays the trumpet as when he sings in the choir, right? North could preach, who knew Kevin Johnson could run sound, who knew Keith and Lou Roberg were such good youth leaders. Do you see what I mean? When we find places for everybody in the church to use their spiritual gifts, marvelous things happen. You are edified, people are discipled and grow, and then God is glorified. Thank you. God is glorified. One third of this stage is filled with teenagers every week. You know what happens when teens are allowed to participate in church as teens? They stay in church. We don't wait till they're out of college to begin incorporating them into the life of the church because by then it's too late. You teach them that their gifts are essential now for the church's ministry, and then they have ownership of that church. When I was a youth pastor, I very rarely desired to see a teenager run service. I'll get asked this sometimes, you know, can we do a teen Sunday, Pastor Brian, you'll preach as the youth pastor and all the teens will run everything else? I hated that. And here's why. I would much rather see those teens incorporated every Sunday, using their gifts alongside the adults every week in every service. That's what I wanted to see. You know how I learned what my spiritual gifts were? I didn't graduate seminary and then start teaching and preaching and then learn, oh, I should probably be a pastor. I started teaching a Bible study as a teenager in the upper room of my parents' house. That's how I learned what my spiritual gifts were. I started teaching as a teen and serving in the church. I also found out through service what my spiritual gifts were not. I tried out some BBS for a time. I learned I don't like kids. They're gross. <laughs> I, I tried out the praise team for a time. I played the trombone. That didn't go over well. But then I started teaching and preaching. And I realized, I like this. And God has gifted me in this. And I want to keep doing it. And I realized my call for ministry, what I'm saying is, when we have a church that incorporates those things in the lives of young people, middle-aged people, old people, and everyone in between that we might have missed, <coughs> suddenly people are realizing just how important it is to participate in church. The church is edified. People are discipled. And the end product is that God gets the glory. That would not happen in my life if I went to a church that only allowed polished perfection everywhere. Listen to how Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 12. Just stick down a few verses. Paul says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. You hear that? Strive to excel. Strive to be great out of this process of edification, this full participation in the use of spiritual gifts. Excel in that. 
Go over and above and beyond what you were before and excel in it. Strive in doing that for the building up of the church. And he goes on to say, down in verse 26, says, what then, brothers, listen to this. This is how church should look, according to Paul. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. Each one has something they can bring. Teenagers, what are you bringing to the table on Sundays? Kids, what are you bringing to the table on Sundays? Adults, how are you using your gifts in the ministry all around you? Mature Christians, who are you discipling to use their gifts in the church ministry? Church is not someplace you can just show up and watch. Well, worse yet, sit at home and watch. I fear this pandemic has done a great disservice to the kingdom of God. It was great for a time to be able to sit at home and, and to see things when you're sick with COVID or when you're out for an extended period of time or whatever it might be. But it's caused a bunch of lazy Christians to develop. And Christians that think that church is just something you can sit back and observe. That is not in the least the way the New Testament pictures church life. May it never be. Notice how Paul says it. Let all things, all things be done for edification. All things in the church are done for edification. That's the music, the greeters, the childcare workers, the announcements, the preaching, communion, everything. What happens when that takes place? God is glorified. The church is built up. Christians mature. Discipleship happens. The church glorifies God when it practices edification through discipleship. And may I suggest one more time, that is the beauty of what you have here right now. You do not have the luxury of all the trappings of a normal church community. You don't have a permanent building. You don't have a polished praise team. You don't have a flashy show. But what you have is love and harmony. You have a spirit of unity. You have members participating in ways that you have never seen before. People who were once sitting on the sidelines now serving actively. Don't lose that. Don't lose that. You invite me back a year from now, and I come to this pulpit or whatever pulpit you have at that time. I want to see it again. Don't sacrifice inclusivity for the polished product. When a church practices that kind of edification through discipleship, when it emphasizes spiritual growth and whole church participation, that brings greater glory to God. As Paul ended his epistle to the Philippians, to God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now let me pray for you. As I do, praise team's going to come up. And right before they sing a last song, I've got a couple things I want to say about communion. Let's pray. Father, I ask in your greatness, Lord, in your power, in your perfection, that you would continue to help this church to bear fruit. Help them to bear fruit of saved souls, help them to bear fruit of baptized individuals, help them to bear the fruit of discipleship, help them to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And I pray that they would continue in like-mindedness and harmony, in a spirit of gentleness and love and self-control. And Lord, I pray that in all of that, you get the glory. Let each and every member in this room use their spiritual gifts for the edification of this church, for the glory of God, in Jesus' name, amen.